just a reminder of what your mission dollars do. That's Dr. Kevin Ezell. He's the one that has sent me uh, letters in the past saying that you are the top two, in the top 200 nationwide in your giving through Annie Armstrong. Top 200, not in North Carolina. That's what I thought he meant initially. No, he clarified that in his letter and meant top 200 throughout uh, the whole United States in your missions giving. Uh, he and his wife have adopted children from all over the world. He said, when we watch the Olympics, we win. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Folks, let's not get to the message quite yet. Let me talk about a few things pertaining to next week, coming back together with modest restrictions. Uh, some of you may be asking, why now? Uh, I think you would agree that we've been in one of the most confusing times uh, I can ever remember. And initially, when all of this started back in March, we were being told that potentially millions were going to die. Uh, there was such fear that churches, including us, exercised a great deal of caution. We didn't know what else to do. It's new territory. We've never been, been this road before. I was reading online back then a few churches who stayed open and comments in their community, very negative comments, and, and the thought that struck me, I thought, will those churches ever regain their witness in their community? Because early on, they stayed open. Their communities were very upset about it. And since we could still get the gospel out online <clears throat> through different means, I thought, let's, let's, recommend, let's, let's follow the recommended steps that have been set forth. And you know, I don't regret that call. I think it was the right call, given the information that we had. It would have been much different back then had we been told you can't meet in any capacity and can't get your message out. That would have been a totally different matter. That would have been a justified case for civil disobedience, regardless of the consequences. But since that's not what we were being told, caution seemed to be a good step. You know, I said back then initially, too, I don't think churches need to do elongated shutdowns. If it's temporary to flatten the curve, as we were being told, temporary may be a good thing to help out. That's just being responsible members of our community, doing our part, being a good witness, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. But as I mentioned initially back in March, an elongated shutdown that just drags on and on and on starts affecting the health of churches in a very negative way. I want us to remember that when the, the writer of Hebrews commanded them not to forsake the assembling of themselves together, some of them were losing their families, their homes, their businesses, some of them were even losing their very lives. But despite those dangers, 
Still the command was given to them, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The current dangers, in other words, that they were facing did not change God's command to them to meet. So you consider that. I've been reflecting on that text a lot recently. And then you think about all the different messages from experts. Recently, I was at a doctor's appointment. I won't identify who, because uh, she wanted me to know she did not speak for her other doctor colleagues. I said, tell me, how do you think we ought to be doing at all of this? And, and she said, well, I, I think, Scott, given the fact that 99.96% of everybody who gets this will be just fine. She said, I think we need to treat this like we do with chemo patients. You tell them to wear a mask, be careful about social distancing and not mass gatherings, and you turn everybody else loose. She said, that's my opinion. I only speak for myself. Anyway, I say all of that to indicate why pastors are beginning to, to look at this a little differently. Because initially we were responding to the fears that millions were going to die. But the data's been changing and there's so many inconsistencies. It appears like if your mass gathering fits a particular narrative, you're fine to me. So anyway, we've started looking at this uh, a little differently to loosen some of our restrictions here. Precautions, yes. Understanding for those who are still not ready, yes. But all of that aside, let's get back slowly and carefully to doing what we've been called to do. Now, with all of that in mind, I want to bring a message to you. Kevin read the text earlier, and it's a text we looked at just last year when we were going through Hebrews. But I don't know of any other text in the New Testament that speaks so clearly and forcefully to this issue. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, let me read it again. And the message title this morning is, Brethren, we have met to worship. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's an old song that says, Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? 
all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. Think of that title of that psalm, Brethren, we have met to worship. Dr. Gary Elder writes, he said, You know, growing up on the East Coast and growing up at the beach there at the Atlantic Ocean, he said, part of my childhood was going out on the beach and building sandcastles. And he said, I got quite good at it. He said, I would build some castles that had city blocks and walls and moats and elaborate structures. They became works of art. But he said, as a young boy, we had bullies in our community, and no sooner had I finished building my fancy sandcastles than a group of them would come running along as fast as they could and approach my work of art and rear back with their legs like they were kicking a field goal and totally destroy my hard work. And he said this happened over and over again. And I finally got enough of it. So I collected cinder blocks. (laughs) And I put the cinder blocks down and I built my sandcastles on top of them. And sure enough, one day I had just finished one. It was again a work of art. And here they came running as fast as they could. And they got up to my sandcastle and reared back with their legs to kick. He said, problem solved. (laughs) Problem solved. Gary Elder goes on to write, Many people see the church in grave peril from from various dangers in society. He said, but they forget that the church is built upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew 16, Jesus had carried his disciples to a region known for idolatry. And in that region, he said, who do men say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, one thing that God has promised to build and bless upon the face of the earth is the church. Now, what is the church? Folks, it's not just the bricks and the mortar. Thank God for the bricks and mortar. Without the bricks and the mortar, without a place to come to to worship, I'm not sure we would do a very good job of gathering to worship on a consistent basis at least in our culture. But the bricks and mortar are not the church. You and I are the church. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones being built upon Christ who is the cornerstone and the foundation. 
The church is a living organism. It's not a stale organization. It is a living organism. Now, you can call the church many, many things, and people do. You can call it a hospital for hypocrites. You can call it a a recovery center, a counseling center for recovering sin alcoholics. Or sinaholics, I guess, would be the word. You can call it a birthing station, a spiritual university, whatever you want to call it. But what does God call it? The bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, I want us to see that as God's children, we have tremendous privileges. We are a blessed people. Have you ever ever stopped to think about all of your blessings? Think also about your spiritual blessings. What if you lived in a culture that had no access year after year, decade after decade to the gospel? What if you were raising your family in a culture like that? No access to the gospel whatsoever. So think of your privileges. But out of our privileges, out of our blessings, grow huge responsibilities. Jesus even said, to whom much is given, much is required. Folks, the privilege of being a child of God means that we live out our Christian responsibilities. Now, as we come to this passage in in Hebrews, we need to gather up in our minds everything He's been saying to them thus far about Jesus Christ fulfilling the Old Covenant. If we don't gather up everything that's preceded this passage in our minds, we're going to miss the application. Because he's been talking about Christ is better. He's better than anything in the Old Testament. He's better than Moses, better than the law. He's better than the high priest of the Old Covenant. He's better than the angels. On and on he goes with that list. Whatever you could think of in your minds pertaining to the Old Covenant, Jesus is better. He doesn't want them reverting back to the temple. Some of them are thinking about doing that very thing. And the reason they want to do that very thing is because they're living under hardship. They're being persecuted. Folks, we don't realize today how difficult it was for many of the first century Christians coming out of a Jewish background. Life was very hard for some of them. And some of them, consequently, wanted to go back. Because to go back to the old ways, to go back to the temple, was more comfortable for them. Simply for attending Christian worship, some of them, by attending and identifying with Christ, as I mentioned a moment ago, had lost their reputation, their businesses, their families, their homes, just about everything. Some of them, their lives. But he's still telling them that if they go back to the old system, they will not find God there. God is not dealing, after the coming of Christ, He's not dealing with humanity anymore based on the old covenant obligations. The old covenant is obsolete. 
The coming of Christ, the new covenant, has made the old covenant obsolete. And so they can't go back. They can't go back and meet with God, that is. They need to press forward. Yes, life might be difficult. Yes, there may be hardships and persecutions and risk of meeting together as the church. But they can't go back. They need to press forward. Now what we'll see today is the responsibilities that we have in the church because of the privileges that God has given us in Christ. That's the big idea of this passage. The Christian life is not all privilege. There's responsibilities that grow out of the privileges. And if we don't keep that balance in our minds, our Christian faith is going to be lopsided. Privileges, blessings, yes. And we have those abundantly. But out of those grow responsibilities. And these responsibilities, as he paints them in this text, are all couched in terms beginning with phrases, let us, let us, let us. Let us. That's the responsibilities that grow out of the privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, let's see how that plays out in the text. First of all, let us approach God because true, life-changing worship is possible. Here we have the first let us. He says, let us draw near to God. Now, we've got to drop down a couple of lines in the passage before we come to this first main point, let us draw near to God. But that doesn't mean that what's come before that main clause is not important. In fact, we can only obey that command, let us draw near, because of what he says first. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us draw near. In those clauses, he's done a tremendous thing. He's essentially gathered up everything that he has said in the book thus far about the sacrifice of Christ and the high priesthood of Christ. It is precisely because of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and it is because of his high priesthood that we can, in fact, draw near to God. Christ dealt with our sin conclusively and finally. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. And as our high priest, he represents us before God and he never dies because he rose from the dead never to die again. The grave no longer has power over him. And so do you see how rich you are? 
The Old Testament saints could not get beyond the fact that every year they had to offer a new sacrifice for sin on the Day of Atonement. None of their sacrifices were complete, so, so they had to be done over and over again. I'm sure it had to feel exhausting at times. Their sin was covered for a while, but it was never taken away. And on top of that, they couldn't go into the presence of God. Only the high priest, not even every priest, only the high priest could do that. And he couldn't do it all the time. He could only do it one day a year. And all of these high priests who could do that ended up dying they would have to get a new high priest. But Jesus has fulfilled all of that. Aren't you grateful? And we can, it means, because of what God has done for us in Christ, it means you and I, each one of us, because He's our high priest, each one of us can go into the presence of God ourselves through Christ. He has opened the way for us into the Holy of Holies. When he died, the, that, that veil in the temple going into the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top as though a man could have stood there and done it, but from top to bottom because God tore it. The death of Christ opened up the way into the Holy of Holies for anyone who goes through Christ. You preach this in church today, and if you're not careful, some people, because it's such a familiar message, respond with a yawn. Because it's just such common knowledge, such second nature to our knowledge. But folks, we don't need to underestimate what it meant for them, how monumental it was for them when you think of all of the limitations and all of the barriers that they had in the Old Covenant. True worship is possible for you and me right now. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, you and I, we have our sin dealt with finally and completely, and we can go into the presence of God right now. Because of what you've done? Because of what I've done? No, because of Christ. You and I can worship God. And Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Father is looking for, He desires those who will worship Him. And those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is you can do that now through Christ. Christ is your high priest and He does the unthinkable. He extends His hand to you so that if you take a hold of His hand, you can go with Him into the very presence of God. The thing that should make absolutely no sense to us whatsoever is that if a professing Christian refuses to do that, to have all of these privileges made possible through Christ. 
And the fact that we can draw near to God through Him, it ought to be unthinkable that a professing Christian does not do that. In fact, not to be a worshiper would be very unchristian. You see, it's not just a privilege, it's a responsibility. It is a responsibility for the people of God to worship God. God is the sovereign God of the universe. He's the God of glory. He deserves your praise and and your worship. It is our responsibility to give Him what He deserves. And you know what? True worship is going to be life-changing. And as we see in this text, it's both an individual responsibility and it is a corporate responsibility, as he will make clear in this passage. Second thing I want you to see, because of the work of Christ, perseverance is needed. Look at verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, circumstances can test us, can't they? Circumstances can make us waver. Some translations use the word waver. Others use the word swerving. Let us be, let us go into, let let us persevere without wavering. Some without swerving. Let me give you an example of that. What happened when Jesus was arrested? What did the disciples do? You remember what they did? They wavered, right? Every one of them. What did they do? They they ran. They swerved. They, They wavered. Their whole world had suddenly been turned upside down. They didn't know what to do. Jesus had tried to prepare them for this moment, and His preparation was perfect, but their understanding was not perfect. They had failed to take in the gravity of the moment when these guards showed up and arrested Jesus. And so they started running and hiding. And what did Simon Peter do? Simon Peter even denied Christ three times. So I think wavering or swerving is a very good way to describe what happened to those guys. Folks, you and I have the privilege of knowing the outcome of the story. They didn't. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that our our response would have been better we would have done the same thing. But when when they finally discovered that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was risen from the dead and He was alive and He appeared to them, that made all the difference in the world to them, didn't it? Jesus gave them the Great Commission, told them to go into Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit on them. And and once all of that happened, these guys were absolutely transformed. They were never the same again. 
Here they were wavering and swerving. They were confused. They were scared. They were running. They were hiding. They didn't know what was going to happen next. But now, all of a sudden, they're out in the streets and they're challenging the authorities and they're preaching Jesus with boldness. We might say that they were definitely holding unswervingly to the hope that they professed, as he says here in verse 23. How could could they be that way? Because they learn that God is faithful. Amen? All of God's promises are faithful. You can take God's promises to the bank. God is faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that God is faithful even when you and I are not. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because His sacrifice for sin was perfect, because His high priesthood is perfect, because He's been raised from the dead never to die again, we need to be resolute in our faith, in our witness. We need to be bold. We need to persevere. In fact, perseverance reveals true faith and conversion. Jesus talked about that in Matthew. He said the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The point is not that perseverance saves, but a saving faith, a true faith, perseveres. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. And then a third word that he gives here. Faithful and consistent church life is beneficial and commanded by God. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is his last let us command in this passage. He says, let us consider. Consider was a mathematical term, giving careful analysis to something. You and I need to carefully calculate how we can spur one another on. The term stir up is a strong term. There's there's almost a violent nature to it. Some translations say provoke one another. A violent nature to it, but in a good way. You and I are to carefully weigh, we are to consider with careful analysis how we can provoke one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Folks, in the Christian life, we're not saved by good deeds. We are saved for good deeds. Good works are never the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. In fact, after talking about the fact that salvation is by grace through faith, not as a result of works, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2.10 to say, you've been created for good works. Now that you're saved, you can do good works. God saved you by His grace. 
But his plan is that you would be in church and that I would be in church with other believers and that you and I would be helping one another to do what God has called us to do. You see, God's not called us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He puts us in a body. We are the body of Christ. And in that body, some are hands, some are feet, some are mouths, some are ears, some are eyes. Some have the gift of teaching, some administration or leadership, some of of serving and helping and giving and showing mercy and on and on we can go with those lists of spiritual gifts and it takes all of the gifts working together to make a healthy body of Christ that's something that online church can never accomplish we cannot function as the body of Christ doing what he's saying here simply by being online. Online for those who can't be here? Yes. But for those who can, it's no substitute for meeting together so we can do what he's telling us to do here. The danger for this original audience, again, was some of them were going to drop out because of dangers, because of risks, because of persecution. You know, today in America, we probably drop out for other reasons, don't we? We drop out maybe because our focus is on ourselves. But notice again, he says, we're to be focused on others, stirring one another up. Our focus is not to be us. Now, I can promise you something, and I can say this with 100% certainty. If you come to church and your focus is on yourself, you will never be satisfied. I don't care what church you go to. If you go to church with your focus on yourself, you will never be satisfied wherever you attend. It reminds me of the guy stranded on a remote Pacific island. Nobody else was on the island. He was all by himself. Kind of like that movie, Tom Hanks. What was it called? Cast Away. This guy was the same way. And finally, he was discovered. A rescue party came. He began showing them the house that he had built, the, the hut. He'd even built himself a workshop and then they looked over there and they said what's that he said that's my church and they looked over and saw another bill and they said what's that he says that's my church now and they said what do you mean he said well I didn't like the way the first one was run Our focus is not to be on self, but on others. In our worship, our focus is on God. In our ministry, our focus is on others. Self is never the focus. In fact, the only time I can find in the New Testament self is the focus is when we are to examine ourselves to see what sin is in our hearts that we need to repent of. Instead of asking if if you are getting what you want or need, ask yourself, Are you giving others in the body of Christ 
what they need. But anyway, they were dropping out because of persecution. Today, we focus on ourselves, so we become dissatisfied, we drop out, or, or we focus on affluence and other things, and, and we get tied up with all these divided interests. You know, we have idols, plain and simple, don't we? We might not have little carved statues we bow down to and worship, but make no mistake about it, we have idols. And some of those idols take us away from God. We allow ourself or things of the world to diminish our love for God. Folks, he's given us a command in this verse. But, but notice there's no way you and I can carry out this command if we are in isolation. This is a command from the Lord himself that can only be carried out and applied within the context of community. It's very important to see that their current danger and hardship did not change this command to be together. Folks, I cannot encourage you any longer to stay home when the Lord of the church himself commands you and I not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If danger were an excuse, the first century church would have never met together. In fact, it wasn't until the conversion of Constantine in 312 A.D. that they were finally out of danger. If you are not in community with others in a church, you cannot encourage others. And you will miss the opportunity of somebody being a blessing to you. You know, oftentimes today when I ask a very mature believer... Somebody who's serving the Lord, what made a difference for them? Oftentimes, they will tell me about somebody years ago, decades ago in their home church, who was a mentor to them and made a tremendous difference. I hope you've got somebody like that in your life. One of the saddest testimonies in all of Scripture to me is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when Paul is writing to Timothy and admonishing him to come to him soon and bring his cloak, because winter's approaching, and bring the parchments and, and the scripture. And he says, everybody's forsaken me. And Demas, loving the world more, has turned back to the world. Think of that. Here's the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary and theologian the church has ever known. And here at the end of his life, he's all alone. Nobody's with him. But he says, the Lord stood with me. There are Christian brothers and sisters who need you just like Paul needed Timothy. Are you there for them? Are you there for them? Get involved in a community group. Get involved in men's ministry get involved in the youth ministry or children's ministry, get involved somewhere and grow and serve together with a community of people. That's God's plan for His church. 
Notice what he goes on to say here. He says, but encouraging one another, the end of verse 25, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You know, I, I mentioned to you a number of weeks ago when all this first started that people were asking me, Pastor, are we at the end? Are we at the end? Is this the end? Well, I honestly don't know. I know that we're in the last days because the Bible says with the coming of Christ, that ushered in the last days. Are we near the end of the end? At the last of the last? I don't know. Only God knows. But the Bible talks about one thing that will happen, and it will be a pruning tool. The Bible says there will be a great falling away. God will prune His garden. God will weed out His garden. I used to wonder about that. What will that look like? I don't wonder anymore. I think it will be more and more and more and more of things like we're seeing right now in the world. There'll be more public shootings. There'll be more viruses. There'll be more tragedies. And more and more people will say, you know, I'm just not going to go out anymore in public. Whether it's a mall, a school, a church, a park, I'm just not going to go. How it all plays out, I don't know. But one thing that I do know that the Scripture teaches, the, the, true, the true children of God will meet together and they will worship their God. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the Word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray, and holy manner will be showered all around. Would you stand, please?